You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with James Hamblin, who is a lecturer at the Yale School of Public Health. He's also the producer. I don't know if that's technically right. You were the author of a number of videos, which later became a book called If Our Bodies Could Talk. And just a few years ago, actually right at the time of the pandemic, when it first kicked in, you published this book called Clean, The New Science of Skin. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me, Greg. We just came out of this epidemic, this pandemic, which was really all about an infectious disease. And you know there are huge parts of the world that are still plagued with all sorts of ailments related to hygiene or lack thereof. But it seems like those illnesses have receded in the developed world and have been replaced by a whole bunch of other diseases or ailments, which we might call, I don't know, ailments of prosperity. And um, there's been this talk about something called the hygiene hypothesis. This is something that you mentioned in your book. And I think you came to this topic about cleanliness in a strange way. You wound up not showering for a long period of time. And I, I remember reading an account of this. I was in the Atlantic or something. And I said, oh, I got to dig into what this guy is up to. And so I was really excited when the book came out. So tell me a little bit. You're a medical professional. If anything, we talk about medical professionals not washing their hands enough. We're concerned with hospital-borne illnesses, doctors, dermatologists, everybody else are pushing all sorts of antibiotics and telling us to be clean and so forth. What brought you to this topic of cleanliness and uh, the science of skin? Where to begin? But it was pre-pandemic, I should note that. And I had been following trends in microbiome science and seeing it really explode in the gut. And a lot of interesting research feeling like we're barely scratching the surface and then I learned about the skin microbiome, a less researched area than the gut biome, but certainly made me start to question, should we be more strategic about what we're trying to do with our skin microbiome? I mean, obviously, we want to wash our hands and eradicate pathogens, but I had always been raised and thought just like that the goal was to just kill everything. <laughs> and we learned in the gut that's not good. You want a healthy microbial ecosystem and wanted to see what that might look like for the skin and were our beliefs about to radically change as we learned more in that area. And that led me on a very long journey of experimentation myself and just learning about the history of the idea of cleanliness and the soap industry and how we came to a lot of the beliefs that we have today about personal care and like what is necessary, what is virtuous, what is right and wrong, gross and disgusting or proper and clean. And I was fascinated by (laughs) how arbitrary so much of it is, or if not arbitrary, at least like socially derived as opposed to scientifically. So of course, there's a medical angle here, but there's also a cultural angle. In many cultures, we associate cleanliness with purity, and purity has been identified as one of the primary colors of morality, and purity is tied up in many ways with cleanliness. And so if this is true, then anybody who comes and says, hey, you really need to be more dirty, or you need to wash less. I mean, you're up against centuries or millennia of uh, cultural meaning. How far back does it go, this notion of cleanliness? Normally, when you see something like that emerge, you think there must be some evolutionary reason for it, right? People who are clean must have somehow done better. But then you read about the 
Muslims would encounter the Vikings and they were like, man, these Vikings are pretty stinky and pretty dirty, but the Vikings had a pretty good run being all stinky and dirty, right? Yeah. Well, so the term, the concept of cleanliness goes back far, far beyond germ theory. And it's always been a stand-in for purity, whether it's religious purity, ethnic purity, sexual purity. And these are arbitrary concepts, but it's been used as this sort of idea of what is right and wrong, essentially. I can't even use the word clean earnestly. It's really malicious. And it wasn't until germ theory came along that the term got mixed up with what you might think of as hygienic behavior being sanitized, as in not carrying infectious microbes. And I think that's a careful distinction that we, I have never and would never advocate that people do things that transmit infectious diseases. But that's as far as the concept of clean really goes in terms of being medically relevant. Far more of its use, even today, is socially constructed. And it's about establishing in groups and out groups, who is clean, who is unclean, who's acceptable, who's not, who's gross and dirty, disgusting. And some of the last final terms that I think are widely accepted in general society to say about people, but they are always stand-ins for some other form of bias. It's a very messy history. And Mm -hmm. I hope that the book helps people think about what they mean when they say the term clean. Be less judgmental about it and, you know, not call people gross or disgusting because they like don't use deodorant or whatever you might say. They have a bad smell if you don't like the smell, but that's doesn't mean the person is bad. I forget which platonic dialogue it was, but Plato tried to make the distinction between the doctor and the cosmetician, right? Where the doctor was all about health and the cosmetician was all about the appearance of health. And if you put some rouge on your face, it doesn't mean you're healthier. Or if you get your wrinkles removed, it doesn't mean you're healthier. But it seems like in today's world, there's quite a bit of blurring of these boundaries. When you go to a dentist, I can never tell when the dentist is giving me medical advice or cosmetic advice. They're like, oh yeah, you got to straighten those teeth. And I'm like, okay, why exactly? And then he's kind of like, well, it's good for you. It's like, how is it good for me? Well, you'll feel better about yourself. Or dermatologists will often prescribe anti-wrinkling agents. And the idea is, is that a medical or a cosmetic advice? Do we often confuse these two culturally? I think that they are inherently intertwined to get into the evolutionary side of it, but that is part of the roots of ageism and of discrimination against people with different disabilities. There's some evolutionary draw to people who look like they're of reproductive age and would able to care for offspring. For better or worse, that still manifests today, even when it's totally illogical and people are having kids at all ages and you can be a great parent with wide diversity of physical and mental abilities. It's sort of a relic, but we use youth and able-bodiedness as proxies for health. People might feel like they want to straighten their teeth or correct wrinkles or have cosmetic surgeries. And you might genuinely feel better about yourself. And there are people who certainly do these things and have positive experiences and feel better about themselves and are better received by the world. And you can get into whether or not that's right or wrong. But it is all tied up in one thing and just the same as no one, when they are truly ill, especially the chronic disease, wants to look like they're wasting away or not thriving and are nearing death. And that's scary to people. So people try to push the other direction. We don't talk about death and dying and disease. It's all tied up together. It's really hard to distinguish because we live in such a superficial world. People's cosmetic changes end up manifesting in very real ways. I take it very, very seriously. 
So as a medical professional, do you think it's important or do you feel there's a tension when you're interacting with patients to limit yourself to things that have been clinically demonstrated to have positive health consequences versus things that the patient is interested in for other reasons? I don't know. Is there a boundary between the medical and the non-medical that we need to respect? I think that the profession generally regards things when something is a problem for you, when you are really self-conscious about it or feel like it is impacting you in negative ways. And there's something pretty straightforward that can be done that's a low risk, that's affordable. That's when doctors discuss cosmetic things. And doctors shouldn't be in the business of just pitching people on uh, surgeries that they don't need. And it all comes back to your own relationship with your body. And so something can be medically quite valuable to someone because it matters a lot to them and it might matter not at all to another person and they're totally fine without it. An exact same injection or procedure or something that might be deemed cosmetic ends up having, you know, very different benefits. But that's in the elective realm. And there are also things that are considered sort of cosmetic rhinoplasties that might help someone breathe better or help them not snore, deviated septum repairs or something where you can live, but it will help you in some functional way. People tend to value that as more meaningful than a surgery that was done with firstly an appearance benefit. But I think that's a terrible expectation based on the way the standards that we hold people to in our society. In the book, you spend a lot of time talking about the marketing of soaps in particular and other cleansing agents and moisturizers and so forth, but mainly soaps. And in the earlier chapter of the book, you're talking about how Unilever and Procter and Gamble and Wrigley and all these folks and and you recounted it the names of a whole bunch of different soaps that I remember from my childhood, cashmere bouquet and camay and ivory. I think they retreated in terms of their significance, but a lot of them, what they were selling was this idea of cleanliness, which was tied up very much in status. You don't want to be part of the, the great unwashed. You want to be upwardly mobile and you want to emerge from the tenements and so forth. And so there was that whole marketing campaign, but then there's this other marketing campaign from Lifebuoy and Safeguard, and that was really more focused on health benefits. And I think that part of your message was that all of this marketing is creating a demand for something that may not be beneficial to us, at least in much of its applications. But if it was just simply harmless puffery, <laughs> it was just simply making people feel better, like no, no big deal. But if it has detrimental or harmful effects, then it's something we really need to worry about. As the market segmented and you had so many different products that were identical, except for maybe slightly different texture, slightly different shape, slightly different color and fragrance, which are meaningful, sure. But they would try to sell them as vastly different things. All the other soaps are hurting you and they're inferior. And if you use those soaps, you will be unmarriageable. You will be unhealthy. Your kids will be unhealthy. You're a bad parent if you don't give the I mean, nothing was too far to distinguish your soap from the other, which is terrible. That created all these insecurities. This was the rise of mass media and you were seeing some of the first celebrities were doing soap commercials saying, why am I so beautiful on the silver screen? Because I use this soap. And you didn't know that wasn't true. And so it did this classic thing, which you still see all over today of like, you have to create a need in someone. You have to make them believe that they are lacking something that they previously were fine. Like the term body odor didn't exist before people trying to sell deodorant. People didn't worry about fine lines before certain beauty soaps started saying that they could prevent them. I mean, soap preventing wrinkles. They were just using every possible marketing strategy. And that's what's really unfortunate about it. It didn't have to go that way. Like look at bathroom tissues like Kleenex. Right now you have Kleenex and you have like generic brands, in my mind at least. 
But imagine we had 75 different types of tissues. They're all just slightly different, but they all promise that there was one that'll make you more of a man, and this one will make you smarter, and this one makes you a good parent. And you're just like, how do I choose? And if they're telling me that if I don't do that, then I'm failing. This is genius. I think you need to change your career yeah. and get into the Kleenex marketing business. I think you're onto something here. It's just like politics, but there's so many places where we don't need more tennis shoes. We don't need more jeans. We don't need more a million things. And people don't come into the space to like honestly add value. They come in because they see a way to market in a different way. You say like all the other ones don't have this thing that I have. You're like, I didn't actually even care about that thing. And is that even true? I don't know. Presumably those insecurities can have negative consequences of their own where people do obsess on certain standards of cleanliness and beauty that are difficult to attain. Some of the insecurities that are created by the marketing for these products could be harmful, right? In that it creates expectations or an arms race to try to achieve unattainable standards of beauty and cleanliness and fragranceness. Yeah. And that happens everywhere. And in a consumer society, you're constantly trying to sift through like what actually would benefit me and what am I doing just because I like it. And both those things are valid. But what I try to get at it in the book is what you don't want to be doing is doing something because you think it's necessary. You think you're bad if you don't do it and you don't enjoy it and it costs you money and it wastes you time and it's bad for the environment. And you're just doing it because some marketing people put this idea in someone's head 100 years ago. And that's the only reason. And that's stuff like ground to be gained there in terms of saving time and money and water and fossil fuels. I've never told anyone not to shower. I have no dictums about that. It's just if you enjoy something and it's important to you, it brings you value, then great. And if not, I think there's a lot of room to be, I know there's a lot of room to experiment with less. You also highlight that sometimes the more you use one type of product, the more it creates a demand for another type of product. So if you use a lot of soap, skin dries out and I have to buy some moisturizer and then that creates a demand for a soap that's less soapy. Yeah. Dove is, they're just differentiators that they're actually kind of less effective soap. And so now being minimal is the marketing flavor du jour, right? Yeah, that is the thing right now. People just want like rose water or something with just very few ingredients, something really mild, something watery. You can get a huge bottle of Dr. Bronner's and just water it down and it'll last you for a year. It's bad for the industry, but that is the inevitable apex of where they've brought us mm-hmm. is a lot of people are you know have quit shampoo or just use serums on their face use like quote-unquote natural deodorants which are oftentimes just like clay and essential oils and it's like really minimal stuff and that is the trend du jour we hit a climax in the 2000s maybe late 90s of maximal consumerism maximal number of products and a large segment of the consumer base has moved toward fewer really high-end simple products so they're expensive and people are still spending a lot of money on skincare, self-care, and all that, but it's much more boutique things you can make at home. But the same copy is being used, right? So ivory was advertised as pure, and now I think some of these newer products, which are less powerful, less aggressive, they're being advertised as also pure or in some way natural. There's a movement called clean beauty, and that is saying we want our products to be quote-unquote clean. And Mm -hmm. Again, it's not a term you can define. It's not like organic, which actually is meaningful, or fair trade, which is meaningful. It talks about the actual ingredients and the ways in which they're produced. Clean is just sheer, like the exact same purity myth stuff. You can't define it. It just means good. It just means simple and good and wholesome. And it's what you want to be. So yeah, that's malicious. 
So I was wondering if you could talk about how we came to realize that so much cleaning was potentially harmful. And was this discovery related to the discovery around the gut microbiome? Were these trends in health or were they closely tied together? Microbiome research was subsequent to, well, we've always known there are microbes on the skin. We've always known you could swab a skin and grow culture, but it wasn't until you got the genomic sequencing that allowed us to understand the gut microbiome that we understood that we similarly were vastly underestimating the skin microbiome in terms of diversity and number. And so we basically have no idea <laughs> what to make of it, how to optimize it any better than we do. The gut microbiome, it comes back to like your know, diversity is good. It does seem clear that if you try to completely sterilize your skin, you might leave yourself more open to some imbalances that could harbor, for example, body odor causing bacteria or potentially the bacteria that are associated with flares of acne, eczema, psoriasis. It's not that you are infected with one thing, but it's an imbalance that triggers the immune system to flare up. So that idea, yeah, it's pretty recent and it's a crude understanding. It's a really <laughs> difficult thing to study and there's a lot of variety from person to person, from a time of day, based on lifestyle, based on location. So it's, if we thought the genome was hard to <laughs> conquer, that was the idea, right? When the genome was sequenced, that we're going to pretty quickly figure out which gene causes which disease, and then we'll be able to take that gene out. It was not at all so simple. And the microbiome is even harder, it actually adds a layer of complexity. It's really interesting conceptually, but I can't tell you much more than like, diversity is good and don't try to kill everything. You mentioned that your skin, it's kind of like a house party. So if <laughs> you got a certain amount of capacity in your house, so if you, as someone who has house parties with some regularity, right, you want to pack the place with the people you want. And so there's no room for the people you don't want. And if there's excess capacity, there's room at the inn, so to speak, then the, the riffraff are going to show up. How do we make sure that we get the party populated with the right folks? I don't even know, not even necessarily about that so much as if you're having a party and it's a 20-person dinner party and there's always the one loudmouth who wants to control the conversation and rant and everything. And 20 people, they really can't do that. It's just going to be a bunch of chatter everywhere and they might annoy a few people next to them. But if you had that same group and there's only six of you, that one person might just ruin the dinner for everyone, basically. Mm -hmm. So it's more about you have enough diversity there, that person can't take over. The bacteria that are associated with the flares of all these super common skin conditions, like they're there on a lot of us. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be all about like proportions. You're not keeping them away. So we don't know how to do that. There's a lot of research going into developing products that are supposed to help optimize the diversity mm -hmm. of your skin microbiome. Everything is hypothetical right now. But at least to me, the most logical hypothesis is that you at least want to not unnecessarily wipe the slate clean because you get that big critical mass you get that 20 person mm -hmm. dinner party and then you just kick everyone out and then you just open your front door and see who wanders in the chance of getting back up to that nice dinner party you were having and actually with a cool good diverse group of people is not as good as it was that is i think what we're doing with some really harsh cleaning products and deodorants you talk a lot about the early life impact and how important it is when you're young to lay down the foundation for a decent kind of microbiome and 
you talk about the Amish and how they have very low levels of allergies and autoimmune diseases because they're exposed to livestock from a very early age. And then you talk about these playgrounds in Denmark where they've got cows and stuff. Is this something that public health folks should be thinking about? Put some cows in Prospect Park and let all the kids come and hang out? We have had cows in Prospect Park, actually. Worth Googling. The practical advice that might come out of the hygiene hypothesis, which it's nothing revelatory. It's just supporting what we've always thought. Eat a diverse array of foods, a lot of them plant-based, things that are high in fiber that help your gut microbiome. Exposure to a lot of different non-dangerous things, so not pathogens. You don't want to go get COVID. You don't want to have someone with tuberculosis cough in your face. The vast majority of microbes are not bad, and they come from just everyday exposures to people and animals and the environment. And you want a diversity of that, especially when you're young, when you're in that training phase. Your immune system is like your brain when you're learning languages. Three years old, you could learn five languages and not be a problem. And you try to do that when you're 70, and it's like, just not getting this. You have different sets of skills. You're less labile and agile. So doing that young, you know, diversity of experiences, which, which are good for so many reasons, that is part of the hypothesis why there are really low rates of allergies and eczema in Amish people is because of a lot of fresh produce, exposure to farm animals that are right next to their houses, exposure to nature, and they live in tight-knit communities, not like cloistered suburban cul-de-sacs, and all these things. It's a reasonable hypothesis. You're exposed to microbes and your immune system learns. Sometimes you end up carrying a more diverse microbiome with you. Sometimes it's just that your immune system is more robust. Like it's seen this once before. It knows not to go crazy over it, and it's good. If that exposure had never occurred, that, you know, that might not be the case. There's inoculating your microbiome by exposing it to the kind of microbes that you want. But with respect to cleaning, it seems like, at least in your book, the suggestion is that a lot of the things that we try to do to improve our skin health is actually counterproductive. And usually when it fails to work, we double down on it, which tends to make it worse even more. And we can get caught in this cycle, particularly people who might have, say, acne or bad skin. They may be making things worse rather than better with some of the aggressive cleaning and maybe even some of the medication. I think antibiotics are often used and other kinds of fairly strong medications for people with skin ailments. That was suggested in the book, right? Yeah, it's certainly suggested. I'm not prepared to tell people that they're making themselves worse, certainly. But it's more the idea that these products that are sold on an idea of making you better, many people keep using them. And then when they don't work, they try to use more or try to add more products and try to get even cleaner. And it's really hard to push in a direction where there's not actually a product. And what might actually help is to do a product cleanse to ease off of these things, you know, if they're not working for you. So, uh, no, I'm not pro or anti any particular product or saying anything is dangerous. As a society, <laughs> as a medical profession, we haven't made a lot of inroads against these super common skin conditions, acne, eczema, psoriasis, that cause, you know, um, you know, to some people they might not matter much, but to many people they quite do, and they're certainly common during the years when we care most. And you would think that we would be able to at least understand the causes more definitively by now and not just be like, take steroids. I don't know. Try these antibiotics. Maybe it'll help. Maybe we can put you on birth control. It'll help the acne go. Like we're really mm -hmm. still just throwing the kitchen sink at these things. And <laughs> so I feel like we do need more out of the box thinking. 
Is there just a bias for action when you go to oh, yeah. the doctor and the doctor's like, look, just best thing for you to do is do nothing, go out and get some sunshine, <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, that doesn't seem like, you know, that's the kind of doctor you'd maybe rethink <laughs> you want to get another doctor, right? Someone who's right. more yeah. um, aggressive. Yeah, no one wants to walk out of their doctor's office being told, could you get more sleep? Yeah. What if you changed up what you're reading? What if like, it's so much more desirable to just have a prescription that you can fill and take a pill or apply a cream that I think that's been ingrained as our expectation of what things should be. And not to say that those sometimes can't help, but they're pretty clearly not curing the problem. And so much of this is more like we need to think about, let's look at your whole skin hygiene, self-care regimen. Let's look at all these possible things that you've been exposed to. And then allergists and immunologists will do this with people to sit down. And, what is your laundry detergent? Have you changed it recently? What, is, what are all the foods you're eating? And what are all the kinds of different soaps and everything that might be touching your body? What's your baseline lifestyle? Are you, are you under stress? Are you eating well? Are you getting some sort of physical activity? Are you sleeping? And all of that comes together. And it really can't just be like, keep doing everything you were doing. Keep all the exposures. Keep your lifestyle exactly the same. But add this paste or this pill. And mm-hmm. it's going to completely upend your appearance, your skin. You know, that it almost never happens. Is part of that also maybe has to do with kind of the division of labor or increasing specialization? If you're, a, say, a dermatologist, understanding the impact of stress and sleep and so forth might be beyond what you normally would encounter. Or maybe if you avoid sunlight, because sunlight will make your skin age more quickly, but it also has these wonderful positive benefits. Is there something about the way in which doctors are exposed to information and the way in which they are educated that maybe constrains the way they can think about these interrelationships? Yeah, some of it is in the thinking, sure, but some of it is just in that problems feel insurmountable. People don't want to be lectured about things that are really hard to change. And then often the reason that people who are motivated to change can't change is not by their own fault. It's that you tell them to sleep and you're like, great, but I have to work night shifts or I have to work two jobs mm-hmm. or I live in a loud neighborhood or I don't live in a safe household or I don't know how to cook and you're telling me to eat better. And these are things that you're like, I'm a doctor. I can't really teach you how to cook. And unless I work at a really good clinic or hospital that has nutritionists and, and culinary intervention and programs, then I can't specifically help you in any way. And it's just mm-hmm. not as simple as writing a prescription or having one conversation. So I think it's also just that the problems are much more complex and they become political really quickly too, when you're talking about issues of homelessness and unsafe households and people with all kinds of different <laughs> psychological stressors that require constant work and help and support. It's not that doctors don't know, it's just that we don't have a healthcare system that makes those things part of the toolkit. When you talk about the microbiome, in addition to having all sorts of benefits to the skin and so forth, if it's properly orchestrated, it also generates smells, right? And smells that other humans can detect and also smells that dogs can detect. And I thought some of the more interesting stuff in the book had to do with what you call the volatolome, right? (laughs) Is that how you say it? Yeah, yeah. The volatilome and how dogs can smell whether someone has cancer, they can be trained to identify this. And that difference is due to changes in the microbiome. Is it changes in the microbiome or is it maybe other things that the body is exuding? That's everything that we put out into the air is partly due to our own biochemistry. 
So your own biochemistry is part of it, your own microbes that are populating your oropharynx and your skin that are helping to determine the smell. You know, that's what mm-hmm. you have body odor, smelly armpits. Everybody knows when you're stressed out and you're not sleeping, you might notice that you smell. And even though you don't normally, yeah. or you just had a, like an overnight flight and you're all off and you're not like, I don't know why. So it's partly what your body is exuding in addition to the microbes that are there that are causing this. And we're sending all kinds of signals to the world all the time. We're just not very attuned to them and we're very good at covering them up. When you look back to the old literature, like you mentioned, like the Vikings and all that, yeah, there were always people who smelled. Like they were always the smelling guy, but there were different thresholds, right? Right now, what we would consider someone to be, you'd notice their odor. Back in the day, you wouldn't. You would have to be really yeah. offensively smelly. Why do we presume that an odor that is organic and natural is presumed to be bad, but an odor that is manufactured and marketed and sold is presumed to be good? Well, you come back to where you started with the marketing. Those ideas are put in our head and so associated with morality and health and so judgmental, you know, that if you don't smell like lavender or lilacs or ocean mist, then it's not just that it's not as appealing to other people. It's like people are going to think you're gross or disgusting or a bad person and shouldn't be hanging out with them. And they're going to talk about you behind your back. And so we do it and then you get used to it. And then anyone who doesn't is like in a vacuum, something that we would not have thought to be judgmental about. We actually suddenly are and very readily. So like when the book came out and I was talking all about this, people were so quick to make fun of it. And that's one of the few things that people still throw judgment out there right away. I don't care, but it's good to examine why. Because not that long ago, if I had talked about being of a certain religion or race or ethnicity or sexual orientation, people would have said, oh, that's gross. You don't belong here. It's not what we do here or something. Like the same vague judgment. It's like, okay, if you actually found my smell to be offensive, then please, by all means, make that known. (laughs) But if you just hear that I don't use deodorant and call me gross, that's more about you. Some of the interesting things you talk about in the book, like, for instance, smelly feet. So how do feet smell? I'd never heard about that before. And then also you talked about how your breath, if you're infected with malaria, you smell different, but that may actually be the malaria hijacking you to attract mosquitoes. Yeah. These are interesting theories and there's so much more to learn about this. So the idea is that the bacteria that creates the smell may actually be an antifungal. And so if you get rid of the bacteria that creates the smell, you may be more vulnerable to foot fungus. And fungal infections can be lethal, right? I mean, particularly for people who walked around barefoot all the time. Evolutionary biologists will try to find a reason to explain everything, but often Mm -hmm. they eventually will. Like we have these mites on our skin. Why do we have them? They live in our pores. They come out. What are they doing? So are, are they eating dead skin cells? Are they like providing some immune stimulation. I don't know. But when something is found in 100% of people, it's, it's normal. That's the definition. And it's unlikely that they are causing us harm. Lots to learn here. And I have to write about COVID more right now. Let me ask you one question about COVID real quick. One of the kind of defining images of the COVID pandemic is the folks in the New York City subway spraying antimicrobials all over the platforms. And I think there was spent hundreds of billions of dollars doing this. And same thing with the classrooms. And I read the New York Times, so I just see the images in New York. They're doing it presumably everywhere. Do you think that the COVID epidemic may have set back any efforts to uh, promote this old friends hypothesis that you bring up in the book? I hope it did the opposite. 
because I hope it got people to focus on washing your hands, not going out when you're sick, not coughing on people, trying to be conscious of not sharing air during a pandemic or sharing with as few people as possible. And to do so it should make you feel uneasy. Yeah. It should make you feel uncomfortable. If you're in a enclosed space, someone's coughing, like I'm never advocating you call someone gross, but that feeling right. of like disgust or visceral wanting to get away from this, that is why we have that evolutionarily. Whereas that same person, you think you can smell their feet, that you might say, oh, yeah, I don't like that. I understand. <laughs> but that's different. That is not a dangerous thing. Same if that person has messed up hair or looks different from you, basically smells different, looks different, sounds different. <laughs> All these things that we tend to talk about, they're carrying over these old biases, but we really should be focused on disease prevention as the source of hygiene. And certainly at ventilation, we need to think about ventilation a lot more. Yeah, I mean, I really feel like this has helped people to focus on like, what's elective? What do I do just because I like it? Because it makes yeah. me look nice, makes me smell nice. I like the process of doing it, so I do it. It's like, what am I doing to prevent disease transmission to others and to myself? They're two different things. I think it's worth considering. I hope the pandemic has helped people to clarify that. What was the next book going to be about COVID? Do you have another book in the works? Nothing to talk about right now. <laughs> But I do have a newsletter called The Body, where I write every week. Okay, we'll be sure to promote that. Thank you so much, James, for joining. Oh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. These were great questions. Clean. Check it out. Also, if our bodies could talk, check that one out, too. Well, hope to chat again soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www dot unsiloedpodcast dot com. <laughs>